Hello, everyone. Welcome to To Buy Guys. I'm very excited for my interview today. My guest has written an awesome book that I was fascinated with, and I think it will be very relevant to the buy community, among others. Uh, my guest today is a gender expert who works to change harmful social norms through writing, training, and facilitation. She has over 20 years of experience working in the international development sector, writing and delivering curricula in over 20 countries about gender equality, women's empowerment, healthy masculinity, and much more. And her debut book, Equal Partners, Improving Gender Equality at Home, looks at gender imbalances in our personal lives and what we can do about it. And it's available now from St. Martin's Press. So welcome to Two Bye Guys, Dr. Kate Mangino. Hello. Hi, thank you so much for having me. I've been looking forward to this for a long time. <laughs> me too. I thought, well, I got emailed the description of your book, and I that happens a lot these days. We get a lot of uh, book publicists wanting to come on this podcast, and uh, and many of them I don't, I don't, I kind of ignore. And this one I read, <laughs> and I just thought, wow, that. I really want to read that book personally. This is stuff I'm thinking about in my partnership. And then like, you know, I think so many bi people will end up in, you know, different gender relationships. We'll talk about that in a minute, but that's sort of a very common experience and yet are working for gender equality and thinking about this maybe more than others. So it's really nice to have you to talk about this. Thank you. Well, full disclosure, I asked my publicist to 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 try to get me on the show because it's I like your podcast. A friend of mine um, sent it to me last spring is when I started listening, and um, and and a lot of the conversations that I've had since the book has come out and before are very heteronormative. So sort of assumptions about a different sex couple, assumptions that the woman is the one that's doing more work. And there's a lot of couples out there who who mirror that. And so I understand that. I understand those conversations and they're important. But there's this whole other half of what I write about, about moving beyond gender binary and, and rewriting norms and thinking about same-sex partnerships and queer partnerships. And so uh, I asked my publicist to reach out to you because I was just, I was eager to have a conversation beyond the heteronormative conversation. And so when you yeah. agreed to have me on, I was very excited. Yeah, yeah me too. Um, yeah. And I mean, we'll, we'll get into this more too. And as we go, I'm sure, but like, you know, for me, when I came out as bi, I, I immediately started rethinking all of these norms and that kind of became part of what was so interesting to me about being bi was like, Oh, now that I'm dating men, it doesn't have to fall into this strict sort of structure that I always imagined in heteronormative relationships. And I kind of got to write write the rules with my different partners. And my yeah. my current partner is a trans woman. And so as she's transitioned, we've sort of figured out the rules as we go. But I always think like, there's no book for this. We, we write it oh. ourselves. But yeah. now there's a book. <laughs> So now we, you can still write it yourselves, but at least you have yeah. this book to kind of help guide you. Yeah. And I do think that there are a lot of universal truths that every couple, it doesn't matter what yeah. your identity is. When two people come together to form a long-term relationship, there's some stuff you've got to talk about. <laughs> yeah, indeed. Okay. And we'll get to it. But before we get to the book, 
as always, uh, I, I would like to ask you, how do you identify on any spectrums you want to identify on and what pronouns do you use? And talk about that for a bit. Sure. I use she, her, and I identify as a cis female. I, you know, I knew this question was coming because I am a fan of your podcast. And I would say I have never used the word bisexual to describe my identity. However, I've also never really used the term straight to define myself either. It's just, mm. I've never really defined myself either way. Um, and I, and I think that in my work, I understand more and more that social norms dictate so many of our actions more than we're probably aware of. And so I'm mm -hmm. interested in investigating and intentionally talking about and learning about and working through how we can change those gender norms so that we can be more open in the future to other generations. Cool. And I'll leave it at that. Awesome. Does that is that cool? <laughs> yeah, that's that's lovely. So I guess tell us a little bit. I read your bio. Tell us a little bit more about your background and like how you got involved in this kind of work. And then, oh, hi, cat. I, we love when cats and dogs join on the show. <laughs> I can't. I, he doesn't stay away. I've tried. So we just invite them to be part of our <laughs> show. Perfect. Love it. Um, yeah. Tell us a little about your how you got involved in this kind of work and then like what what led to actually writing this book and and how'd you go about that? I've been doing development my um, most of my career um, since you know I went back and got a master's in my mid twenties, and I have worked in development, specifically gender and development, for a long time. And so, in twenty years, our concepts around gender have changed. I would say in the early two thousands, development work, and when I say development, I mean changing behavioral norms in projects overseas for some sort of beneficial outcome, whether it's HIV prevention or it's curbing early in childhood marriage or um, uh, gender-based violence. You know, there's usually a, a technical issue, but there's a gender norm that's, that's limiting the success of that objective, right? And so they bring in different people from teams to, to talk to help groups talk through those gender norms and think about their biases and think through what we can do to either you know navigate around or rewrite gender norms so that we can reach our objectives and make sure that fewer girls are getting married off and that more girls are graduating from high school and that you know more boys have access to healthcare. So that's what I've been doing for a long time and I would say that when I started in the early 2000s people used the term women in development because everyone associated gender with women and girls which we now is outdated mm -hmm. completely and that gender is about people of all genders and it's about that equality needs to involve people of all genders and so um, I think my work has come a long way just because the discipline has come a long way I think differently about gender now than I did you know, in 2003, when I graduated from my master's and then the different than I did from when I did a PhD. And I, I hope that in 10, 20, 30 years, we will continue to think differently. Yeah. Um, I think I went down a tangent there. I don't know if I answered your question, but. <laughs> <laughs> well, well, I, I just want to interject because it's like, I, I mean, the idea that it's women interested in these kind of gender studies is like very harmful and I'm glad it's changing. And I, it's also harmful, like, to me, because it kept me out of learning about this stuff. Yes. Like I remember in college, it was the women's studies department at my college yes. that was talking about sexuality. And mm -hmm. I didn't know, like, I was just like, that. I guess that's not for me. I didn't even 
consider it or make a conscious choice not to take those classes. It was just, oh, that's women's studies. Like, but if it had been about gender or sexuality, like, I don't know, maybe I would have been clued in a little. Absolutely. And so what we thought was progressive 20 years ago, we look back and we realize it was harmful. So maybe what Mm -hmm. we're doing now is harmful and we won't realize it for another 20 years. But I think just constant self-reflection is pretty much the best thing we can do. Yeah, exactly. Well said. Okay. So then I guess bridge that gap to the book. Like, How did you start thinking about writing this book and why and, and how did you get the process going? So that I think I start, it started bubbling up in my head when I became a parent, which was 11 years ago. And I realized that our expectations around mothers are very different than our expectations around fathers. And I was getting increasingly frustrated that I was having unbelievably sophisticated conversations around gender in Zambia, in Indonesia, in Nepal. And then in the playground down the street from where I lived, I would have people say ridiculous things to me that were straight out of like a 1950s sitcom. Um, Like, oh, you're going away for work. Who's going to help your husband make dinner? You know, just like, (laughs) it just astounded me how archaic some of those conversations were. So that's started you know, sort of like bubbling the ideas up. And then I was doing research in Indonesia and I was um, working with groups of men around redefining masculinity. And they were lovely men and they welcomed me into their house. We're having great conversations. And after like three hours and everyone's just like covered in sweat, you've just been there for a long time. Someone was like, what what do American guys think? What are they like? Like, are they Go, are, are they doing this hard work like we're doing? Are they thinking about their own masculinity? Are they, are they trying to be better or is it just us? And I was like, I don't know the answer to that question because I only work overseas. And so that's what really made me think I would like to apply all of this cool stuff that I do with my own community and start a conversation with my own friends and family about harmful gender norms that I still see us perpetuating purposefully and accidentally. Cool. All right, so let's let's get into the content of the book because um, there's so much. I have like way too many notes on this book for us <laughs> to get to in time, but hopefully we'll hit most of it. Um, okay, so you, you kind of open the book with like an anecdote about your friend um, who, you know, is sort of realizing that like things are getting better right now with gender equality. And it's certainly a topic that's on people's minds more than it has been. And men are maybe making more of an effort to do household work than before, but that that kind of still masks a a, like foundational inequality and an unequal divide. So can you kind of Tell us the lay of the land and describe what you call a neo-traditional home. Yeah. And I will say the lay of the land has unfortunately been very heteronormative. And a lot of the research that we have, the data that we have, is grounded in different sex couples. And so I think we're mm-hmm. just starting to get information on same-sex and queer couples. Which, and, and a few people I interviewed for the book were bisexual. And would, it was very interesting to hear how they would code switch between mm. who they were in a relationship with and how that would impact sort of who did what in the home. So we can get into that. Oh, interesting. But I, I, so I do think that I just want to preface this that a lot of the the data that I have and I can repeat is unfortunately heteronormative, but we're we're getting there. So we've uh, 
academics have kept chore journals since the 60s, like in different sex relationships, who's doing what in the home. And in 1965, the average was in a different sex relationship, a man would do 15% of household work and a woman would do 85%. Looking at norms in 65, that probably meshes with what our understanding is, right? By 1985, it um, it moved to 33 and 67. So between 65 and 85, there was a very big shift in patterns in our homes. And I think that also is reflecting women entering the workforce in much greater numbers. Between 85 and 2020, it's only changed from 33% to 35% in terms of male engagement in the home. And, hmm. and we also have realized in the last few years that chore journals only track physical chores, folding laundry, um, cooking dinner, grocery shopping. And you th- now we talk about cognitive labor, all of that management, all of that expe- all the expectations, all of the um, looking forward to what is needed in the home. Like, you know, there, the, the dog is need to get, needs to get groomed. So I need to make an appointment and I need to take time off work. And like what, all of that cognitive work that we do in the shower and while we drive to work and we, while we exercise and while we fall asleep at night, isn't being collected. So we mm-hmm. have data to show that we still have in, in homes. In so when you asked, what is a neo traditional couple? It's two people who both work, who both add to the economy of their household, but the vast majority of the chores fall on one person over the other. And we are seeing this flipped. We see in different sex couples, sometimes it's the man who the it's predominantly falling on his shoulders. And we even see in same sex and queer relationships, to, to typically closer to equality, but still nowhere near equal. And I think that that mm. opens up this interesting discussion about how our structures inform our social patterns, regardless of gender identity. Um, hmm. Yeah. Interesting. Okay. I wanted you to continue on that, but I, I did, <laughs> I, I found it so interesting reading the, the part about uh, cognitive labor, labor, emotional labor, because I never really thought of that as I, I never even realized that's really happening or that that's something to divide. It's just like things on my mind. But, you know, when I do think about it, it's like I keep the calendar and I know in our household and I know what's coming yep. up and, you know, when we have to go out and do something. And and like that is a, an amount of cognitive labor, even if when I think we're pretty equal in my household of chores. But like it's it is interesting to th- think about this whole other aspect of it. Absolutely. And calendar keeping is one of the huge things that comes up time and time (laughs) again, because and the more people who live in your home, imagine if you had four or six kids, calendar keeping is all all you do. I don't have, I I only have two, but I can imagine if I I, don't even have kids and I'll, I mean, I can't imagine with kids also if I was the only one. Okay. Right. Okay. So, well, I guess I have more questions, but can you continue on what what you were just talking about, about the structure, the structures of these things that influence this? Yeah. So I think that, um, I think there's a lot of gendered presumptions. I think that's one of the reasons why this, these patterns continue to, um, we, we can, we're, we replicate these patterns. And I talk about that in sort of, uh, earlier in the book when I talk about how, oh, oftentimes we'll say it's their personality, like the partner that does the vast majority of work, they like Mm -hmm. it. (laughs) They're good at multitasking. It's their personality. And a lot of times that is, that's gendered. That's the way they were brought up, the way they were thought they need to behave in a relationship. 
Um, I also think another big piece of it are our structures. When you think about, okay, if you share a home together and the refrigerator gives out and the repair person says, I'll show up between eight and two. Well, if neither one of you work from home, one of you has to have a flexible job to be the one that's like, oh, okay, I'll stay home and wait for the repair person. Or we're getting a delivery and they gave me a five hour window. I'll stay home and make sure that someone doesn't steal it off of our front step. Or if you have pets and dogs need to be walked by a certain time, there's, we often have one person who focuses on work and income and one person who takes a flex job that can handle all of those household stuff that comes up. And then when, if, if children enter the relationship, then you have schools that go from nine to three, even though the workday is eight to five, right? So someone has to watch them before and after. That school asks for one parent contact number. The pediatrician asks for one parent contact. Camps ask for one. And so everything is, there are things that are required for childcare that happen within that workday and they ask for one parent's name. And so Mm -hmm. the structures demand, again, this enforcement of a flex schedule and a work person. And so I Mm -hmm. think that regardless of gender identity, couples tend to fall into these patterns that accommodate our structures. Yeah. That is interesting. It's like, you can't even say, okay, you, you get the school emails and you get the, the after school program emails. Cause then you got a coordinate. So you almost exactly, have to exactly. And then someone. it's like, it's more work. Um, it was, mm-hmm. I interviewed a man named Christopher Carrington for my book and had a lovely conversation with him. He wrote, what is his book called? No place like home. And he uh, researches same sex couples in Northern California and has been for decades. And he told me that he found that marriage equality actually made, he saw a shift in household dynamics after marriage equality and that dynamics got more unequal. And he said, mm. before marriage equality, you were, if you were in a same-sex relationship, you were both forced to own property. You were both forced to have your own insurance. You both had to, because you didn't have the privileges right, that everyone else had mm-hmm. that you couldn't share. Well, after marriage equality, you had access to those structures. You could share insurance. You could co-own a home. You could um, have joint parenting for children. And he started to see one person focus on career and one person focus on domestic. And he said that just sort of reaffirmed that we are forcing our lives to fit the structures that we have as opposed to really living out how we want to be. Interesting. Okay. So I have a couple questions on this, but like, it makes me think of like a lot of my straight married friends who, you know, probably are falling into this and going with these structures and, and dividing labor on unequally. But if you ask them about it, they would probably say, this is fine. This is just how it is. It's how we've always done it. We don't even think about it. Like we're both happy with these roles. So I'm curious, like, how can this inequality harm a family unit, even if the partners feel okay with it? So I don't know too many partners who are both okay with it. And I bet if you ask <laughs> them both- They just say that to I, me. <laughs> I think the person who's doing the, the, the more work, I think the, the person who is tasked with all of that cognitive labor might be struggling. 
Mm -hmm. And it's just no one sees that struggle. And I think this is, you know, it traditionally is discussed in circles of women because this is something that often falls on women's shoulders of sort of like, this is, this is really frustrating and he doesn't get it. Right. Uh And I've also had a lot of men write me since the book has come out to say, I'm the cognitive labor in my home. And I feel totally unseen and unheard because all these articles in the mainstream press are about how evil men are. And how we're not pitching in to give our wives opportunities, but I'm the one pitching in and I feel very lonely because I don't know too many other men who are in this role. I don't have a community around me. So, hmm. so I mean, at the end of the day, if two people are happy in their relationship and it's working, fantastic. Like, I'm the last person that would ever want anyone to choose or to change something that's working. Like relationships are hard enough. So if you're happy, but I do think that in a neo-traditional relationship, I want, you know, it would be interesting for you to ask your your straight friends in relationships, are you both actually really happy or does one of yeah. you wish the other one did more? Yeah, and I you got probably got to separate them and ask them separately. <laughs> yeah, that might be helpful. <laughs> you might get a different answer. <laughs> yeah, I think maybe that's what I am running into is, you know, nobody really wants to get into it. <laughs> This podcast is sponsored by Zencaster, and we are also part of the Zencaster Creator Network. You've probably heard me talk about this many times, but I love Zencaster. It has made everything so easy for me and streamlined and has made sure the quality of this podcast is as high as it possibly can be. The first couple seasons were pretty haphazard and I needed a better solution and I found it with Zencaster. This is our fourth season on Zencaster, third season in the Creator Network, which has been awesome. But the main thing is it is so easy. It's an all-in-one tool. It's all in your browser. You don't need to download anything. Your guest doesn't need to download anything. You just send them a link, you show up in the browser, and Zencaster takes care of everything. It has never dropped audio, even when the internet goes out. It has never dropped video and everything is recorded locally so that it is the best quality you can get, whatever equipment you're using. The podcast sector is always changing, but it is still growing. And if you've been thinking about starting a podcast or sharing your stories, now is the time to do it. So go to zencaster.com pricing and use my code 2 guys, and you'll get 30% off your first month of any Zencaster paid plan. I want you to have the same easy experience I do for all my podcasting and content needs. It's time to share your story. I have met a lot of like queer and bi men who like these are things that are that are more on their mind. They don't just want to like go with societal norms we've we've broken out of this sexuality binary and then you start thinking about gender roles and i mean that's what happened for me like i was very locked into these roles before i was out and then all of a sudden Mm -hmm. i was like oh i don't have to do that i'm i'm free to do what i want and and i wanted to find more equal partnerships but i guess i have a question for for other people who maybe aren't there yet like for men you know, they, they're doing less work, right? Like it's, uh, it might seem like a pretty good deal, but (laughs) how do you think this inequality hurts men, even if they're on the side of doing less work? 
so the harm is harder to see on a day-to-day basis, right? If you are the, if you're the one who's doing the majority of the household work, you're exhausted, you're frazzled, you are not able to perform. You probably feel like you're failing your home and you're failing your job because you can't do anything well. If you're not the household laborer and you have a lighter load, it might seem like you have a great deal, like you 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 get to do less, right? You have more free time and you have more flexibility. But here are things that you don't have. And I think that to when you truly have an equal partnership and you're both fully invested in your home and you have realized that that age old norm that we often code as men's work of providing for your family is not just financial. Providing for your family means emotional work. It means spending time. It means taking care of, right? Whoever's in your household, it's taking care of that person, spending time with that person, fulfilling their emotional needs just as much as their financial needs. That is what providing really means. And the men who who I interviewed who have understood this, have come to understood this, say that their lives are so much better when they are fully contributing to their families. They don't argue with their spouse over who has to wash the dishes because they both know they do their equal share. They feel like they have a true partner and teammate as opposed to splitting hairs over who's going to do what. Because they spend so much time in the home, they have a really deep relationship with their partner and with kids if they're kids that you aren't just the guy that comes home for an hour in the evening and doesn't really get to know your kids as, uh, as who they are, but you spend all of that time and you really form really deep relationships. And I interviewed several men who had grown kids, like teenagers or, or adult children, and they said, you know, if I hadn't have put that time in when they were little, if I hadn't have been there for them through all of those years in the afternoons, on the weekends, being there when they were sick, being there to help them with their homework, being there to talk through all of those tween and teen drama issues. Nowadays, we're just good friends. They choose to spend time with me. I hear from them on text every day. We take vacations together. They're still open with me. And they recognize that it probably wouldn't be that way if they were that sort of part-time dad that mailed it in when they were kids. Yeah. Interesting. It just makes me think of how like my partner and I have sort of talked about these things a lot, had like meta conversations about, you know, how are we going to talk about this and then who's going to do what and should we check in? And sometimes it's like, feels like so much more work to talk about it all. But then I do think that at least we're not then every, every time there's something to do or a decision to be made sort of having to figure it out or or resenting someone for not doing something like then at least we've had we have the structure to talk about it but it does sometimes seem like more you know more work up front to to get to get these things going yeah i would agree with you especially in in newer relationships i just think that there's a lot of stuff to decide and that it's, but it's worth the time to talk about it in the beginning because then you set really healthy patterns forever for, for the life of that relationship and you don't get stuck down the road. And I also, you know, you know, I always I I encourage people to have these conversations when they're dating before they've moved in and before they've gotten married, before they've made a commitment. 
And everyone's like, yeah, no one wants to talk about this stuff when you're dating. Because when you're dating, it's like physical and it's exciting and it's romantic. And like, who wants to talk about gender norms? And yeah, I get that. But then how many, you know, really bitter people have I met who have been together for 10, 15, 20 years who are thinking about splitting up, who are thinking about leaving their partner because there's just so much resentment there. So Mm. if you can do a little bit of work up front, I think that um, it will pay dividends over the years. Yeah, right. I think sometimes not, not doing that work up front can, can mask stuff that, that will, will not come out for a while, but yeah. And I do think it's important. Oh, I'm sorry. I think every couple's different. Like I've met couples who they have like a check-in once a week or once a month. And I know other couples that they just like to talk about it as it comes up. But I think figuring out when you want to talk about it and setting some boundaries so that it, because if, you know, just to make sure that you're both um, like ready to have those conversations and they don't take over your life, that you do have boundaries and be like, okay, we're going to talk about that on Monday. And then we're going to not talk about it for the six days after that. Yeah. 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 Interesting. Okay. Um, one more on the topic of men and masculinity. You write in the book about this image of the quote, ideal man and how it's like, Men are seen as providers and stoic and in control and decisive. And that when you really think about it, it's not very real and it's almost an impossible goal. And so it makes men try to fit that model, but also feel like they're failing every day. So I guess like, how does that play out? And then how can working towards a more equal partnership help with that? So I you know, just as gender norms are harmful for women because they can be restrictive, they're harmful for everyone. And I think that in terms of, you know, living up to masculinity, you know, nowadays a lot of boys are being raised in environments where they're, they understand there's a range of healthy masculinity, but that's not always the case. And I think there's still a lot of messages, especially in media about the kind of man you're supposed to be. And if you have this in your head of, I'm supposed to be tall, I'm supposed to be muscular, I'm supposed to be straight, I'm supposed to be uh, in control, I'm not supposed to be emotional, whatever. If you have this in your head, like sort of that movie image of the strong, in control guy, and if that's the kind of guy that people want to date, right? So you're trying to fulfill that for romantic partnerships. You might be trying to fulfill your parents' ideal of what a you know perfect man of like whoever is expecting this. Uh, If you fall outside of that, if you aren't straight, if you aren't tall, if you aren't muscular, if you are emotional, if you are a caregiver, if you're anything opposite, then you feel like you're not a successful man. And I think it's important for us, for everyone to realize, because I think a lot of times women force men in that box just as often as men force men in that box, right? Like, you know, women want Mm -hmm. to date a certain kind of guy. They want a guy to, you know, show, uh, a Lamont. I'm trying to think of her first name and I can't, she's a researcher in West Virginia and she studies the transition between dating and long-term commitment. And she says a lot of times what women are looking for when they're dating are sort of this guy with the cool car who are totally in control and very strong and powerful. And then when they transition to a long-term relationship, they want like the carer, the equal partner, the one who listens, the one who's emotional. And she's like, this doesn't work. That That's two different people. You need to be more clear with yourself about who you're looking for when you're dating 
as opposed to thinking they're going to switch personalities when you have a commitment. Yeah, wow, that's fascinating. I guess maybe that's an interesting segue because to talking about what these equal partnerships look like, but actually on the way into that, you talking, so tell us about the, is it the EP40 or EQ40? It was EP, so Equal Partners 40. I interviewed 40 men who live as equal partners. Uh, 35 of them are in, uh, in relationships with a woman and five of them in relationships with a man. And one of them actually transitioned, um, during the interview process. So when I first was introduced, uh, identified as a man. And then after my interviews were wrapping up, identified as a woman. Um, and I just thought, you know, I, there's just so much media attention to what men do wrong. And I have an eight-year-old son. I don't want him to grow up surrounded by like what toxic masculinity is. You know, like can't we just talk about Mm -hmm. healthy masculinity or aspirational masculinity or just be yourself masculinity as opposed to like this is what you could do wrong because because of your body parts. So so I just wanted to have an appreciative approach. And so I reached out and found these 40 men who are in long-term relationships that consistently work to be equal partners in their home. Like that's just a big, um, focus of their life and their relationship. Um, 30 of them had kids, 10 of them did not. Um, several of, most of them were born in the United States, but I had several men who came from Africa, Asia, South America, and were first generation Americans. So it was just interesting to talk about all different perspectives of how they ended up kind of all with the same philosophy of it doesn't Mm -hmm. matter what my gender identity is like, this is a really important thing for me to do for a healthy relationship. Yeah. It's really interesting. And we'll talk about what those relationships actually look like in a minute, but something I thought that was fascinating was like, you wrote about who, who these 40 couples are and sort of where they came from and why they might be looking for equal partnerships. And you wrote that 75% of them. So I guess 30 out of 40 had the experience at some point of their life of being othered. And mm-hmm. so that, I mean, I just connected that to what I was saying before so much that it was like, when I didn't feel othered, I never thought about this. I mean, not as much. I, I you know, I probably would have been fine with a 65, 35 split or something yeah. looking like I'm doing more. But then <laughs> as soon as I sort of felt, felt othered and was thinking outside the box in these ways, then then it, all of this stuff made so much more sense to me and became a priority. So t- tell us about the 75% of that group yeah. and what that and means. And it's interesting because the way they were othered is is very different for each one of them. Some of them were hmm. othered because they were the only brown or black kid in a very white school. Some of them, One of them was othered because he was the only kid with a disability in his high school. Um, you know, othered because they were a new immigrant and they struggled to speak English, right? So everyone is othered in a different way. Some are othered because they knew they grew up um, bisexual or gay and that they were othered due to sexual orientation. But just having that awareness, it's like um, taking the rose-colored glasses off and seeing things for what they are and experiencing being that minority group that makes you like, oh, there are lots of people that feel this way when we're on the outside and we can't get in no matter what we do because it's who we are. And having, you know, you would never 
you would never wish your kid or your nephew or niece or whoever to be othered. But when it does happen, and it probably will for most kids at some point in their life, to use that as a teachable moment and to talk about, you know, okay, how do you feel? And let's put words to those emotions and let's talk through that. And then let's talk about how you're going to work to prevent other people from being othered in the future. Right. And I think that that self-awareness can be a really important, you know, you said for yourself, it was a really important step for you. So use that as a teachable moment for everyone. I want to get into a, later, you know, how the, the queer and trans and bi couples m- may have looked at these things differently. But let's start with like a baseline of, uh, you know, what what did some of these equal partnerships look like and what what were some of the key takeaways or things you found interesting from this group? So it, what it looked like is that they didn't make any assumptions about who would do what because of gender identity. And they both worked very hard to maintain that both partners did half the physical and half the cognitive work in the home so that no one felt like they were shouldering a, a larger burden. Now, I will say that this, you know, relationships um, ebb and flow, right? I've been married for Oh gosh, six, I think 16 years. I think we get in trouble. Uh, 17, (laughs) anyway, right around there. (laughs) And so I get it. I get that there are months that are going to, things happen, right? Like people get sick and, um, and, and jobs, I don't know, are more demanding. And there, there are always going to be weeks or months where that shift is going to change. But when you're, so, so the couples did not follow each other around with like a spreadsheet or an app <laughs> tracking what they're doing. That's not what it looked like. What it looked like is from 10,000 feet over the course of time, there was no resentment because both people were fully committed to the relationship and doing half of the physical and cognitive work. And that looks different for every couple, but it was that missing piece of no resentment, no animosity, and degendering everyone's work. And so, you know, for some couples, it was like, we both hate cooking, but someone has to do it because we have to feed the household every night. So let's switch on every other month, right? And because we just don't want to make one of us do it all the time. Um, It was having conscious and intentional conversations about like, what, what has to happen to make our house run and how can we divide this equally? A lot of people chose like domains and Sometimes it would stay for the life of the relationship and sometimes it would switch monthly or annually. But like, I'm going to be the food person. So I'm going to do all the grocery shopping. I'm going to make sure we always have staples. There's always going to be something in the fridge to cook for dinner. There's always going to be stuff in the, in the fridge to put in lunches for kids. That's my job. The other person doesn't have to think about it. And by not having to think about it, that frees up so much cognitive capacity. And then the other yeah. person will say, Okay, I'm because that's a big job, food. So the other person says, Okay, I'm gonna do laundry and cleaning. I'm gonna make sure that someone always has their uniform clean for soccer practice. You're always gonna have enough, you know, whatever shirts for work. And then the other person doesn't have to think about it unless you ask. Another interesting trait that all these couples had is they, if one of them went away, the other person had no problem keeping things going, which meant that they were both aware of what had to happen in their house to make it run. So it would Uh be harder because it's harder when your partner's gone for a week or two on a work trip and you have to do all the things. 
but it wasn't, no one had to make a list, right? Like how many stories have I heard a woman, a woman goes away for the weekend and has to like at four o'clock pick up Jimmy at five o'clock, put lasagna in, you know, oven set at four 50. You don't Uh have to do that because you both know what to do. You both know Mm -hmm. who the pediatrician is. You both know that there's, you know, swimming lessons at, you know, on Thursday nights. And so I think that by both of you knowing that also relieves a lot of pressure that one person doesn't feel like if something happened to me, my family would screech to a halt. Yeah. Fascinating. (laughs) And I've talked to so many women who are like, I lay awake at night and and a few men, but the, whoever is in that role being like, I lie awake at night, scared of dying because I don't think, I don't know what my family would do because I do all the things. And that's an incredible stress and pressure. I think it must be to feel because you feel like you're the only one who knows what to do. Yeah. I'm sure I know many people who feel that way. Um, okay, so I asked this in a different way before, but I but it came up again in the book of like for for men who maybe don't want to like it's have this quote privilege of like not having to deal with all that and and you know having a more equal partnership will require this like sacrifice or I mean that may be how some people look at it, but but you wrote in the book about how that's not the right way to frame it and that being an equal partner is actually more rewarding for both partners. So like how, how have both partners felt rewarded in, in among these couples when they're actually doing that? I think that there's a tremendous amount of stress and pressure in sort of financially providing for your family a hundred percent. And so when men, the men that I've talked to are like, when I took on more care work in the home and more labor in the home, I could also let go of a lot of that pressure because equal means mm. that we are both equally responsible for bringing in money and we're both equally responsible for care in the home. And that that, that was worth it to them because the carrying that sort of heavy, I have to make a certain amount of money. I can't switch jobs. It doesn't matter if I'm horribly unhappy in my position, I'm stuck because I have to bring home a certain amount of money and it's not enough. And I feel pressure to go out and get a second job, whatever that is. Equal partnership means you can give part of that away because you're sharing in everything. And so I think that that was one um, huge benefit for men that they would say, I used to carry a lot of stress around and now I don't have to. And um, and men who are fully present in the home, again, tend to have those emotional connections with family members and their partner that more absent men don't necessarily have. And when you have those Mm. deeper connections, that brings you joy and happiness. And that also alleviates stress. So you actually see less physical health problems in the long term because you have less stress and mental um, or emotional health problems. Mm. Interesting. There was a good, um, I'm trying to remember the, the, the state of the world's fathers uh, was a UN report and they, they do it every two years. And it has really interesting data on sort of the, the health benefits to fathers in particular when they are involved fathers and equal partners in their homes. Huh. Interesting. Okay. We'll try to link to that and put it in the show notes. <laughs> yeah. Uh, give, give men more motivation if they don't have it already. Yeah. Um, you also talk in the book about um, the spectrum of where men can be in these relationships and then sort of where women will 
fall based on that. And it's sort of from the king of the castle to the hands-on husband to the equal partner. And that they're not necessarily, we love spectrums on this show, and they're not necessarily (laughs) these distinct rigid categories, but that, but that it's a spectrum and that, you know, these couples that you interviewed are moving towards it, but everyone's sort of in a different place on the spectrum. Can you, can you talk about that spectrum and where, where you see people moving sometimes? Yeah, I think that, um, so I, what I wanted to do is because I think there's a lot of men out there who think they're an equal partner and they're not, (laughs) they're Mm -hmm. helping they're, Oh, I always do what my wife tells me to do. Okay. You're not an equal partner. Uh, right. Like, um, she's the, she's the manager and I just help out. You're not an equal partner. And so, but I think that we overpraise men because we have a culture of overpraising men. And so I just wanted to point out and clarify, you know, helping husbands. Okay. You're, you're better than the king of the castle. Like you're not, you know, you're not like Homer Simpson and that's great that you're better, but you're still not an equal partner and we still have further to go. Uh, it was hard for me to convince people that this book needed to be written because people were like, we don't have a gender problem. Like we've reached equality. Yeah. <laughs> what are you talking about? And so that that spectrum was like to help me articulate where we are and be like, yes, we have come so far in the last several decades. And yes, we have so much further that we could go. So by defining what that helper is and then what a true equal partner is. And then, yeah, you're right. They're not three buckets. It's a continuum with like a thousand points in between. And there are men that do more than 50% of work in their house. And, you know, the continuum can continue in both ways. Yeah. I thought some of the those the ways you reframed these things were so interesting in the book, like the one you just mentioned of like the supervisor employee relationship, which like, uh, I've seen that a lot. It's like oh, I do whatever I mean, my wife tells me, and I, I do a yeah. ton, I do more than her, but you know she tells me everything to do, and it's like that's uh, that's like a job, not like a a co manager situation. Right. It's like a job, but there's no accountability. It's not like you can give a bad performance review and or dock someone's pay or fire them. You know, you're you're their partner. Yeah. I thought that yeah. And that's so not sexy. Like who wants to have yeah. their partner tell them what to like I don't want a list of things to do from my partner. Yeah. That's that's not sexy. <laughs> yeah. I also thought the bossy wife decoy was so interesting. Do you want to uh, explain what that means? I just I see this all the time. I see it coming from not just men. I hear women defining themselves this way too, but just like I wear the pants in the family or like she makes all the rules. And so it gives off this air of her being in charge. And so she's in charge. She's making all the rules. It's her choice to do things this way. I just show up. But, you know, again, she's still doing the vast majority of the labor. She's still doing all of the cognitive work. Um, I think it's an excuse to, you know, sort of like, that's why I call it the decoy. It's like, look, there's a bird. It's like we're talking about gender equality and it's a distraction to get people to think, oh, but if she was wearing the pants and making all the decisions, then she's happy. But I think that's not the issue. The issue is we're talking about two people in the home. You're both working full time outside the house. Why is all of the cognitive labor resting with her? Yeah, right. Yeah. yeah, that one was interesting. It's like I, I, I think I saw that a lot growing up. Of yeah, of uh, 
like it seems like the woman's in charge, the wife is in charge, but actually that's an yeah. illusion. It's it's by default because the husband's not doing anything. It's like okay, right. So somebody has the, to take turns, the weaponized incompetence idea. Yeah, exactly. Let's talk about the the queer and bi and trans couples that you interviewed, or just sort of in general, like when we take heteronormativity out of the picture, what how how do we still fall into these traps or what what does it look like to try to work towards an equal partnership when gender is fluid or equal already or something like that? Um so so many thoughts. I'm trying to think what do I say first. So Yes. So kind of going back to your personal story that you shared earlier about how when you came out as bi, you were forced to rethink through gender norms. And that helped you sort of process a lot of patterns that, you know, that are gendered that you had been doing that maybe you want to change now because of your identity. So I think that that I I saw a lot of that, of of people who are like, "We're, we're comfortable we're more comfortable talking about gender norms than perhaps a different sex couple or heteronormative couple. We do this anyway. We've been forced to do this since we were, you know, however old. Um, Society has made us think through gender norms. And so we are more comfortable talking about it and thinking through it. And, And they still kept falling into gendered patterns of sort of one person. Oftentimes, it wasn't coded as gender. It was coded as financial. So the person who earns more in the relationship would take on those male coded roles. And the mm. person who earns less would fall into the female coded roles. Sometimes it was hours at the office. Oh, I have a really demanding job. I have to be present at work 60 plus hours a week. He, you know, that person falls into the male coded roles. The other one would fall into the female coded roles. I, um, and interestingly enough, I, the, I interviewed two women who were bisexual and in the interview, they were currently with women and said that in past relationships with men, they would fall into this female role very specifically and heavily, but then they preferred being in a relationship with a woman because they were both women. And so they were both had both been socialized to be, to take care of the home. And so they could have much more direct conversations and they, they were able to find equality easier than when they were in a relationship with a man. Yeah. I identify with that so much because like my partner is a trans woman and, you know, like now there are certain things she wants to be in the woman, traditional woman's role, because that's this thing she never got to experience. And it's always been this desire, but you know, when we met, she didn't identify that way. I didn't know. And it was really my, one of my first, you know, non-heteronormative relationships and I had always felt locked into these roles and then suddenly with with my partner we got to figure it out ourselves we didn't have to do it that way and then even when I want to be in that traditional masculine role or in certain ways at least it was a conscious choice and we got to think about it and talk about it so I identify with that very much but I still think it's hard. I still think that even with all of that, with all the, the with all of that that you're bringing to a relationship and that that excitement and that readiness to talk through it, it's still hard. And so I think yeah. just being having that expectation that it's we're not going to fall into equality. Now. And I don't think anyone that's that's the message. No one 
falls into equality naturally. I think it takes intentionality Mm -hmm. no matter who you are. Right. Well, yeah, I mean, for all the, like, for all my talk about, like, we get to write the book ourselves, like, we still had to then write it and figure it out and and like, oh, my God, it's not easy to figure that out. And then, you know, sometimes we don't, we both want to do the same thing and don't want to do the other thing and it needs to get done. And, you know, I guess that's another question I have both with queer and same sex couples, but also for anyone like, you know, different people have different strengths and everyone is different. How do you sort of balance like gender parity or, or just equality in a partnership with also playing to each other's strengths and interests? Like what if you fall into a, a, these different roles, but it feels like your personality? How do you, how do you really know if it's equal? Or yeah, not? I think that's a really good question. Want to hear Kate's answer? Head over to my Patreon. There's a link in the show notes and our social media bio. It's patreon.com slash Robert Brooks Cohen. There are six minutes of bonus content for this episode. Kate answers that question and talks about how to untangle gender roles from individual strengths and weaknesses. She talks about how to access our true feelings versus conditioned responses. We chatted about the importance of community and supporting equal relationships and also how to actually find a partner who wants equality in relationships. I know there isn't a ton of content on my Patreon yet, but there's more and more every week and I'm also planning some new things around November and December when my book about bisexual married men comes out so thank you so much to everyone who has already subscribed it really means a lot to me and helps me keep this going and I'm doing my best to post these episodes extra early and without any ads plus bonus content and bonus clips from old seasons so I hope you have been enjoying that and now here is a little bit more of my interview with Kate Mangina in terms of raising kids i don't have kids yet but someday i hope to how do you raise kids who will grow up wanting to become equal partners and like how do you model it does modeling it trickle down or are there other things you can uh, sort of do in raising kids we might need another hour to talk about that conversation. <laughs> <laughs> that's, a, that's a big one. Yes, yeah. I think role modeling is really important, but I don't think it's everything. I think that role modeling is important, but talking about it is important. A lot of people I've interviewed over the years have said, like, my parents actually role modeled equality and I still didn't get it. So you have to have that those intentional conversations paired with role modeling or when there's negative role modeling, whether it's your own relationship or a, a neighbor or a relative, point that out, not in front of them so that it's weird, but like on the car ride home, just be like, hey, how did that strike you the way they were behaving? And you know, talk about it out loud mm. and that it is appropriate. I have talked to my children about gender and race and ability since they were toddlers. You just do it in stages. You know, you talk about consent in stages. You just make it age appropriate. But kids are really capable of having deep conversations from an early age. And so I would just say, don't shy away from it and uh, have be willing to have those hard conversations with kids and help them figure it out on their own. But I, I think that role modeling needs to be paired with conversation. Yeah. I, I also, I really connected with the part where you were talking about, I mean, it's related to what you said, but 
to teach kids and especially boys to how to articulate their feelings and how to actually think about their feelings. Cause I think that's something I've had to work on in adulthood. Uh, cause I wasn't always comfortable articulating my feelings and, and yeah. actually, you know, that do- may not seem totally related to splitting chores, you know, but it, but it actually really is the foundation of it. I think you have to be able to check in with yourself and then, express it in a in a kind way to your partner but but express it authentically otherwise you're never you're you're not going to move forward absolutely i mean we often with boys we stop at mad sad glad right like those mm-hmm. are the three feelings that are okay when you're a boy and anything else is not okay and so we don't teach boys this range of emotions and so we need to teach boys I feel humiliated. I feel left out. I feel othered. I feel inadequate. I feel scared. Like we need to have this broad range of emotions because um, we we have evidence that shows that when people feel an emotion and they connect it to a word, they are more able to feel empathy for someone having that emotion in the future. So if boys can understand what humiliation feels like, they will empathize with that when they meet someone who says that's how they feel. So I agree with you. It feels like it might be a disconnect, but it's actually at the core of what we're talking about. If you're going to be the kind of person who is self-reflective and open to conversation and willing to do something different and to be an equal partner, you're going to have to have the ability for some self-reflection. Yeah. Yeah, exactly. I love it. And and it just I it reminds me of this other quote that I think was at the very beginning of the book but about how this is really an issue that needs to be looked at by people of all genders. It's you wrote focusing message solely on women suggests this is a women's problem implies that women need to fix it. But the truth is that household imbalance can restrict people of all genders and it can be perpetuated by people of all genders. And so uh, you know, I uh, like that's something we talk about on this podcast all the time about how patriarchy like is is perpetuated by us all in it. And obviously it hurts women, but it also does hurt men, too. And like there, yeah. there's rewards in breaking these structures, too, even if you're sort of seemingly benefiting from them. Uh, there's all these invisible forces that just drain the life out of you, I think, yeah. and you know, like. <laughs> And it's just in these invisible things that are not good um, for anyone. And so hopefully totally uh, agree. all the men listening to this will, will take it upon themselves to <laughs> and, help and, then, and, I, and I think it's a healthy place to start is that is take it away from the personal. We don't need to be mad at an individual person. We can be mm. mad at the patriarchy. We can be mad at misogyny. We can be mad that we were all raised in this socialized gender world, but to recognize that we're all products of it and we're all going to have to work to get out of it. So I think giving each other some grace too, and letting, you know, and asking some questions and not making so many assumptions, but taking the time to say, how do you feel? What do you feel like? That's another good question when you're dating. What do you feel pressured to do because of your gender identity? And can I help you relieve that pressure and and Mm. share that? And, and, And I think when women ask that question of men, you get some interesting answers. Yeah. Many men probably haven't thought about that. (laughs) Yeah. Cool. (laughs) Awesome. Well, that's a lovely note to end on. Uh, There's so much more in the book. I have a few pages of notes that we we didn't get to, Um, but, uh, but hopefully that gives you all an idea. I encourage you to pick it up and talk about these things with 
your partners, your friends, your family. Uh, And thanks, Kate, for being here. Uh, This was really fascinating. Thank you so much for having me. This was um, just really exciting. So thank you. Two Bye Guys is produced and edited by me, Rob Cohen, and it was created by me and Alex Boyd. Our logo art is by Caitlin Weinman. Our music is by Ross Mincer. We are supported by The Gotham, and we are part of the Zencaster Creator Network. Use promo code 2 Guys to get 30% off. Thanks for listening to Two Bye Guys. <laughs>